Welcome to Supply Chain Next with your host, Richard Donaldson. Join us as we explore the ongoing evolution of supply chain, from the challenges professionals face every day to the ongoing digital transformation of the entire value network. And welcome to the next episode of Supply Chain Next. And I am thrilled to have a uh, friend and colleague, although virtual, I shall say, of Jason Murray. And, and we were just before the show chatting up and realizing we hadn't spoken in a couple of years. So, Jason, welcome to the show. And, and, and thanks for joining us this morning. It is great to be here. Thanks for having me. Um, at some point, we got to find some way to, to meet in person, too. So this will be this is awesome. <laughs> <laughs> I still feel like all this virtual remote stuff, it's still sinking into people. They're like, oh my God, I've known someone for two or three or four years, but I've never actually met them in person. Yeah. And that's 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 all too common now. Yeah, Richard could be like a seven feet tall as far as I know. So, <laughs> yeah. so all right. So let's let's just let's just kick it right off. As I always like to kind of start with a little bit of an origin story on you know who Jason Murray is. And you know, you've had a pretty interesting career, although I will also say fairly focused. And I'd, I'd love to hear from yourself about just kind of how you got started, you know, what launched you into, you know, becoming, you know, getting to Shipium, but what got you even into the supply chain and procurement? I mean, that's a pretty odd, odd thing to get into. Yeah. I mean, I'll, I'll just kind of walk you through the, the story, but um, I, I actually, I was at Amazon almost 19 years. I, I actually 19 years. <laughs> I was going to say almost 20 years. Um, I started there in 1999, and when I oh. came over, I was actually a software developer. So I was, I was, uh, I came over as a, um, I was working on kind of compiler and operating systems type classic computer science stuff that everyone did back mm -hmm. in the late 90s, and uh, over to Amazon. And this isn't, this isn't. Sorry to interrupt, but this is in Washington, right? You've been sort of in Redmond the whole time, or thereabouts, kind of the Washington in, in area. The, uh, yeah, I was. I uh, I live on the. You know the Seattle area. I live on the east side. Amazon is, uh, uh, you know, Microsoft's kind of in the the east side. The Redmond, Amazon's a Redmond Bellevue area, and then right. um, Amazon has always been kind of in Seattle. And so, yeah. Um, anyway, started at Amazon in 1999, and I uh, I I I went into the space that was essentially the fulfillment center system space. So what we were doing at that point in time was we were developing the software that essentially runs the fulfillment centers and so kind of what's happening in the building and you know in those days that was really the entire focus of of amazon and logistics like there was kind of no notion of 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 um you know like how we're doing procurement that was all kind of done manually by the retail teams and stuff but mm -hmm. but um you know it was, it was how to how to make those buildings how to make the buildings run efficiently and um the challenge in that day was in those days was just that the 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 kind of way you do single piece flow e-commerce was not really figured mm -hmm. out. I think if I go to mm -hmm. fulfillment centers now, it's pretty, you know, it looks pretty similar like it did back in the early 2000s at Amazon. But this whole concept of kind of how do you flow goods from from through the fulfillment center in terms of pick and um, sort and then pack and and how and make you know kind of break the constraints in those processes and I just like honestly the reason I'm I'm going so deep into this is I just fell in love with this this kind of concept of using software to um, kind of do physical things right it was it was if if you go back in time and to that period of time you know most software people were doing things like Microsoft Office or Microsoft you know working on operating systems and kind of we we were working on these really physical things. And I just thought this is the coolest thing ever. 
And, mm-hmm. um, you and, know, and I'm going ju- to jump in for a second, yeah, Jason, because again, I think this is, you've lived this, this is your origin story, Yeah. but at the same time to level set for the audience. I mean, if, if I remember correctly, so here we are in 1999, <clears throat> you're coming over a software engineer. If I'm not mistaken, Bezos had just kind of sort of launched the Amazon. I mean, your Amazon was only a few, I mean, what were we yeah. about 96, 97, if, or 97, 98, if I remember correctly. So it was kind of an embryonic um, company at the time. And how, yeah, what employee it, number were you? Uh, it's it's tough at Jeez. Amazon because the, yeah. the, they have the warehouse associates. And so there's always, you know, quite a few. I think it was in that period of time, though, the, the actual kind of group of the IT corporate people, um, you know, it was a couple hundred. It was tiny. Right, right. And, right. Yeah, and, and, yeah. and that's kind of my point, which is also, yeah. even though you, I mean, you, and we're going to get to this and I want you to expand on it because I can see the eyes light up and we're getting into the <laughs> pickback and all that sort of stuff and how that grows in. But I also think I don't want you to overlook the fact that your experience at that time is one, Amazon, for all the external views of Amazon, it was a book selling platform, right? Yes, yeah. But you were under the covers beginning to build the infrastructure that led to becoming Amazon, the e-commerce giant, right? Yes. So were you aware at that time of strategically what was going on, right? Because you may, I mean, I I mean, you could have been just a kid in the candy store, but now looking back on that, you were at a really interesting juncture where, you know, this is, this is your people always go, how did Jeff Bezos go from book selling to this e-commerce giant? You were right in the middle of it, you know, literally. Yeah, no, that's, that's right. And I, what I remember um, was just all of this difficulty around, you know, books had this skew model and, um, you know, they had and they had list prices and it was kind of this pretty easy thing to display. And we were try- what we were trying to figure out at the time is how do you kind of receive toys into the warehouse, right? Because it's like mm-hmm. it comes in multi parts. It's these weird weird, you know, things that you combine together that are major storefronts. And um, that was kind of the work that was happening. And then on top of that, it was just all of the fulfillment processes has kind of been built around books, right? It was mm-hmm. it, books are very uniform in size. And um, I don't even know if, if Bezos himself realized what a genius thing it was to focus on books initially, just because of the kind of the fulfillment requirements. Right. Um, right. And even more to the point, not, you know, going in the rabbit hole even further, right. A lot of the software that was built was, was had we already had legacy software in the fulfillment centers because sure. it was built for this model where we were they were running out of his garage and receiving books, putting them in bins, and then you know, which essentially acted as the sort to the to the um to the person receiving it. You know, you receive mm-hmm. you get the book from the distributor, you put it in the bin of where it's going, and that that ends up shipping off to the to the person. And it, you know, because it was kind of this indirect mail order thing when it started. And so we had a bunch of stuff in the software of the way the fulfillment center software that was kind of linked to that. Right. So it was kind mm-hmm. of untangling that as well. So, um, but no, it was, it was, uh, I think you're, you're out, you're right on the money that you were starting to see us kind of shift towards new product types. Um, right. and I think, I think there was already, you know, some early rumblings that, that kind of, we were going to move towards, you know, we were going to move away from books and into these other things. Um, Mm -hmm. I think the first couple categories were obviously the other media categories, which, you know, for, for the younger podcast listeners, we used to have to put discs, physical discs and machines to watch movies. Um, you know, books still remain, but anyway. How how archaic. Oh my God. Uh, uh, You know, God forbid we talk about eight track tape or something like that. Jesus, right? (laughs) Um, 
but we had, uh, you know, we, we basically, it was kind of sifting towards toys. And I think they had started putting some kitchen stuff on the site. And, you know, they all had, they all had challenges in terms of bringing it in. It was becoming really clear. Um, you know, Bezos, I think had already kind of locked into this, essentially borrowing from Walmart, which was, which mm-hmm. was you, you, you kind of selection is going to be this huge driver in e-commerce. And, yeah. um, I, you know, it started with these super centers where you have a hundred thousand items, but e-commerce kind of the first pass of e-commerce, the amazing thing about it, before we talked about fast shipping or, or sharp prices or all the other stuff that's going on now, but it was all about selection. And that was what mm-hmm. e-commerce was going to drive. And I think you, you had this opportunity to basically show people millions of items, um, mm-hmm. which was totally novel at the time, right? That was just crazy mm-hmm. to, to give people access to that kind of selection. And it didn't necessarily mean that um, you even, you know, I, I think the 80, 20 rule around retail was not really in play in those days because people were buying into the tail and you were, you're really starting to see that, that shift from a consumer standpoint that I can go online and find anything. Um, but it, you know, my point of all this is it was building the fulfillment infrastructure that could handle that. And that was really exciting from a career arc perspective. Um, and, 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 and again, as you're going to launch into kind of the progression here, give you a breather for a second. And, and, you know, as you kind of look then, so you kind of come in at 99 and you're, you're just at the beginning to start this 20 year career at, you know, again, household name, Amazon, right? You're also at the formative juncture of what I would begin to say was the digitization of the actual supply chain. Cause it was one thing to conquer e-commerce as a front end, you know, UI or UX, you know, experience, right? That's honestly, that's the easy part. Yeah. What you were tackling yeah was the middle part, because we're not getting to manufacturing yet, I'm going to leave that as yep. an open item for the end, but in the middle is now, how do I get things from A to B? How do I move a product from A to B? And that, to me, feels like the early transformative uh, uh, beginnings of what we're seeing now kind of migrate through 22 years later, You know, the yep. digitization of the entire world supply chain. So you were at the very beginning stages of that digital transformation. You began to carry it through in your career at Amazon, knowingly or unknowingly, you were stepping into what brought you to Shipium. But at the same time, you were solving probably one of the biggest problems that you know the digitization of the supply chain needed to solve. Yes. So now as you yeah. kind of carry through your career, I guess my very specific question is, and, and this is sort of a, 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 what do you think now looking back on it, was the key to success in digitizing that logistics piece, right? Like what elements do you think you uncovered and developed and learned through these 20 years? And, and please go through that. But I mean, to me, I feel like there's like a nugget of wisdom in there around yeah, yeah. what you uncovered that is going to migrate to all of the supply chain. So I, I actually think that's a great question. Um, to some reason, some degree, I almost feel like you're kind of teeing me up, but I'll take it. I'll take the, I'll take the layoff, right? Like, um, the, the, the thing that I think was the most interesting about kind of how Amazon approached logistics, fulfillment, supply chain in general, um, was basically the customer facing notion of it. And I, I don't, I don't know if, if some of this was was conscious, you know, and this is not some of these are not a new concepts, but some of it was more of the practicality of kind of you really have to solve up the stream back from the customer to get this stuff right. Because if you're not anchored on 
what people need ultimately, like what, what's driving the supply chain, which I, I think is, is ultimately people in retail. It's, it's, it's sales and people buying stuff and the convenience attached to it. And, and I think what's interesting about e-commerce is, is those problems and those things that you kind of, you're not able to hide it like you are in a store, right? People get exposed mm-hmm. to what your supply chain looks like, whether you like it or not. And it shows up mm-hmm. as, as things like, you know, slow shipping or not being delivered when it was supposed to be, or you're not, you're not being able to tell them when it's going to be delivered. All those are factors, right? But I think what Amazon was doing and and by working in the fulfillment centers to start is we were getting the part right around this, this like, let's figure out what the consumer needs. And then I'm going to essentially pull the rest of the supply chain towards that over time. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. my biggest thing, even with shipping, you know, shipping now is, getting companies or people to frame things in terms of that context, right? What, right. who are you serving with the supply chain? And it's ultimately the customer. And if you're not mm-hmm. razor, if you're not laser focused on that, then, then you're kind of focused on the wrong thing ultimately. Mm-hmm. And I, I think it's so easy to get lost. You know, I'm going to jump ahead a little bit, but when you, you start talking about supply and ocean freight and everything that's happening there, if you don't anchor it on why you're pulling this stuff over to ultimately to sell it to the same customer, then you've lost something, right? And it ends up, mm-hmm. what happens is it turns into, how do I get more stuff shipped across the ocean for cheaper? Like I can get a whole container of this and then my unit cost is cheaper. But if no one right. buys it, then you haven't saved any money, right? And this, right. Is, the, right. this is kind of the, the problem with thinking about it kind of at this, at this individual component part. And so this systematic thinking and really anchoring it in the e-commerce, the, you know, e-commerce lets you attach that transaction directly to when the customer receives it at the door. And then you kind of pull everything back from that. So that was a lot, but I think in general, that's the theme. That's the, that's the theme that dominated my career. And I had the real, I had the um, virtue of kind of following up going up the supply chain or going kind of starting all the way at the customer when you're in the fulfillment center, putting, you know, stuff in boxes that people are going to get and then moving up the supply chain over time to kind of where things are now. So anyway. Well, let's, no, 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 let's dive into that because I think that, I mean, number one, obviously great, great, great perspective. And I think this is, again, you know, we might even be in the early stages of developing the academia that supply chain will be taught on over the next 10 or 20 years is these yeah. lessons. You know what I mean? That's sort yeah. of the, the, the essence of the question is like, what the hell did you guys figure out as you're going? Right. Cause a yeah. lot of it was just trial and error case in point AWS, you know, I mean, I, that's my kind of world X world, right. The whole data center world. And you know, I know for a fact, Amazon wasn't intending to be a cloud services provider, but it's like, holy shit, we built all this infrastructure. God damn it. Let's rent it out. Right. So, you know, yeah. you were solving problems you needed to do to do your core business. And in this case, you got the e-commerce site set up. You could sell books and realized, oh, I could sell anything. And then you get in and start tackling kind of, okay, the middle part of the problem, you know, again, the manufacturing side, which is how do I get the stuff from a to B, how do I move it? How do I transport it? How do I make that efficient? How do I make that economical? How do I automate that? So you're building all of the, and, and, and as you said, quite quite eloquently, you have to focus on the demand side, right? The ultimate problem you're solving for is when I look at the current, and this is the number that's out there, $100 trillion global market, right? How do I tap into the demand signals to assure what I'm manufacturing, building, and delivering in an efficient way, right? Because the more I know about those aggregate demand signals, the more efficient I can make the supply chain, I guess is another way of kind of doing it. 
But I want to double click one more in there, which is there's also some fundamental technology building blocks. So I'm kind of now teeing up a little bit of the geek side, right? Which is there's the consumer demand side, that's the business side. But then underneath it in logistics, you must have solved some pretty cool shit over the last 20 years on how technically, right, to get accomplished that. And my suspicion here is there's a data model hidden under there that probably <laughs> has to, you know, there's, there's the whole structured data thing, which is also an interesting anecdote, right? Because I was at eBay for five years. So one of the things that eBay did really horrifically at the beginning was they did, had no unstructured data. Amazon yeah, comes true. along, right? And, and, you know, lesson learned from eBay structure your data up front, right? <laughs> Which is why this, this is why you can find things in, in Amazon and you can't find it in eBay. And I'm not saying anything, you know, that no one doesn't know, no, but that's, that's, exactly. that's the underlying reason, yeah. right? Yeah. So same thing here, you guys started building some, you started thinking of some data models around logistics that, that ultimately now looking back on are probably pretty unique and fundamental for other people who are now trying to digitize logistics. What might have those been? Um, yeah, that's a good question. I think, I think, you know, the, the, the part of it is I have this kind of framework in my head where I think there's always this, and I think of it more or less as a loop, right? Like kind of mm -hmm. a, kind of a, a constant loop that's, that's changing. And I, I think, um, one of the things that you have to kind of think about when you're building these processes and it, it you know, mine, I'm so, I'm so like, down the rabbit hole at this point. Maybe it's applicable <laughs> to something else, but I know yeah. it's applicable to this. So we'll we'll start here. But I think, you know, the the sometimes the issue is jumping ahead. And the three stages I kind of think about are are measurement, um, automation, and then optimization. And okay. I think it's it's really important to not kind of jump ahead on any of those things because I think the the tendency when you're when you're kind of a C-suite coming in trying to make a change at a company is is I'm gonna go right to optimize, right? Like I'm gonna I'm gonna jump in and and do that. And I think I think the the key is really about what you're what you're trying to do is put like you need to you kind of have to understand the data and and kind of see where you know where is it messy where what needs to be cleaned up and one of them one of them is item properties right i mean we've, right. we've seen we've seen um and this is not like a hard thing to understand but cost in in fulfillment in small parcel fulfillment especially is driven by weight and dimensions right pretty much right. that's it as far as cost goes there's there's a couple other like you know does it have lithium ion is it you know right. a couple it's things can explode like that, in the plane right yeah right all that you know <laughs> right. so, so a couple right. things going on there yeah. but but in general it's it's weight and dimensions and dimensions even kind of honestly less so and that's because the reason that it were there is because that's what's driving costs, right? It's like, you know, this right. is how many things I can put on my truck and this is what, and, and so um, I, I think, you know, you kind of start with like, I need to figure out what's the, you know, I need to have all of this data if I'm going to start making an accurate estimate of what carrier I should pick and what it's going to cost me. And that's mm -hmm. important. Um, I think the other thing that, that, but, but on the other side, it kind of becomes, um, it, you know, like, I'll just give you another example, kind of this measure, automate, optimize thing, which is just that on the carrier side, you know, Amazon was probably early on what we started doing is just measuring carrier performance, right? And, right. and you know, and and this whole concept of, of we called it delivery estimate accuracy and DEA. Mm -hmm. And I, I would say DEA was 
one of the anchor metrics that drove operations for almost the entire time I was there, right? This, mm-hmm. this notion of if I decide it's going to get there by Friday, how accurate am I with that? And I better as hell be in the high 90s on that, right? It's extremely important that, that what you promise people, you're going to deliver on. And I'm going to start sure. measuring and tracking that. And so, the, you know, the example is, though, I, I figure out DEA, and that puts me in a position to now say, well, now I have a model of how fast carriers are going. Why, you mm-hmm. know, I can, I can promise off that. That's the automation state. Right. But now I can optimize and say, like, I'm going to pay for ground shipping and know that it's going to get there in two days. Right. And right. these types of insights, like having access to kind of understanding what the carrier performance actually is and, and kind mm-hmm. of using that as, as your as a tool in your tool belt. That was that was kind of critical to what eventually became the engine that powers prime. This, this thinking yep. and the way this was approached. So. And, and, um, and again, I think you also, and again, to you know, kind of come back into that in a slightly different way to kind of come back and tease you up through the growth of your career and, and kind of what you developed at Amazon is, you know, you talk about the data, right? So, so obviously data is key. You've got the e-commerce data. So you, you, again, you've got a front end e-commerce platform that's selling a bunch of stuff. So you kind of know what the demand equation is, right? So then all of a sudden you say, okay, well, I'm going to move stuff from A to B. I need to know the weights and the dimensions. That's the key data element, right? And really it's weight at the end of the day. What am I moving? Right. So inherent in the question and simplifying, you know, paying down to the core blocks, you know, it's one thing you had asset data structured at the forefront so you could organize it and make it searchable in the e-commerce experience, right? That's one piece of set of data. Secondarily, as you started getting logistics, you realized, oh shit, I need to know the weights and the dimensions. Otherwise all this logistics stuff is going to get honky exactly. and weird, right? Yeah. So you kind of started to begin to focus on that. So my question is, as you began to develop within Amazon these insights, you then further began to influence, I guess, downstream to the manufacturers to say, I need this data out of you because they probably didn't ironically have it at the beginning, right? right? And you're yeah. asking questions that no one had really asked before, which is, if I'm going to automate this using technology, well, the asset data is the key element, right? We're in a digital world, we're in a virtual world, right? You got the physical stuff down, but I'm trying to kind of digitally twin now, right? This whole kind of experience. And you kind of did it knowingly or unknowingly, very methodically from the selling point, moved back into the logistics point and uncovered what are the key elements of data I need to know to make logistics work. Right. And so my question is kind of inherently in that, how did that, how do you view that experience now looking back on that? Because you, you didn't realize, I don't think at the beginning, like, oh shit, we're automating like, you know, logistics into a global sense by using this digital twin methodology. These are all terms we now know today. You didn't yeah. know it at the time. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, like, no, that's interesting. I didn't have a I digital did. twin concept 18 years ago. Yeah. And, and, you know, maybe one of the other interesting things that kind of, I mean, my recommendation to people when they talk about, you know, where do I get this data, right? I, I will yeah. typically say, get it from anywhere you can. Get it from <laughs> anywhere and everywhere. Like, right. like, you know, you're absolutely right. We did ask manufacturers, can you send us this, right? But right. You, you also, you want to use signals wherever you can to mm-hmm. basically feed this back into the system. And that might mean... Um, UPS charged us more than we thought this would cost, right? I understand, you know, I, I've modeled out what this package should have cost to ship it there. We, in the fulfillment center, you know, 
having this concept of of like when a pot when a box is ready to get its label put on it, you know, how much does the system think it's going to weigh versus how much does right. it actually weigh? Right. And, and, you know, potentially you kick it out and, and redo it, but it's, it's all about like continually finding these places to measure. And, Mm -hmm. and I think, I think the, if you're not kind of doing that consciously and trying to get like, give, you know, supplier, give me your data, customer, tell me when something's wrong and this doesn't make sense. UPS tell me in the fulfillment center when I actually physically have the thing, feed this back. And then I'm, I'm kind of constantly building this model that's saying, this is what it actually is. I Now I know mm-hmm. I've, I've shipped this a couple of times and I'm accurate with this. And then that data ultimately informs kind of what's happening upstream. And, right. you know, I, I think, I, I think though that that was in those years, uh, we didn't have the, the compute power and we didn't have the, the kind of formalization around what you would call machine learning and, yep. and whatnot. But the interesting thing about supply chain and logistics and operations is it's just such a perfect, um, uh, playground for machine learning, right? It, it, oh it works so well for with those big kind of data sciencey problems because I it, I think it has to do with the fact that the objective is kind of inherently very clear, right? And I, yeah. if you know me well, you know that I'm like pretty cynical on the the um, the AI thing in general, just because I, you know, I I kind of like if you if you play with your Siri or Alexa, you're like, I don't know, it seems like it's going to be a while before this is going to take over the world. But you right. know, in terms of these problems with very defined, like large amounts of data, clear output on the other side, clear objective function, it works really well. I, I have a mm-hmm. lot of faith in your ability to do a much better job optimizing than you know a human mind can just just because of what it's what it's trying to accomplish and kind of the 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 goal and objective there but um right. no i i think you're right that but but at a high level if i kind of back up a little bit i think what we were really doing in those early days in the fulfillment center is you were setting the groundwork setting kind of the the laying the groundwork to be able to build these processes and collect the right information such that you could start going upstream on the supply chain and and um and actually, you know, building out these these more complex processes that ultimately led to Prime, which we can talk to right. in a little bit. Yeah, yeah, no, exactly. And I think that's a great lead into that, right? So, so now kind of begin to arc forward a little bit. So, you know, you kind of get in, you're doing logistics, you're building this thing. Um, you know, it's almost like, we're, we're, it's funny enough to say in 99, the world was just getting used to e-commerce. You guys were already the step ahead, which was trying to digitize logistics, right? That's why I was kind yeah. of asking the question is the, the world saw Amazon transfer from books to e-commerce underneath the covers. You were building a logistics platform right. predicated on a new data model that people hadn't seen before. And the real transformative uh, problem you were solving was, okay, manufacturers, you got to start digitizing data about your assets, create complete asset records, and we got to figure out a way to feed that into system. Otherwise, all the machine learning you're talking about, that's useless if I don't have good data. Right. I mean, that's cool and all. I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm with you on the AI thing. We can, we can spend a whole nother time talking about that. But, that's, <laughs> but you know, as far as just a straight up algorithm, you know, that's just a computational calculation. These massive data sets that should be there that aren't. So you right. had to solve for that. You had to begin to exactly. do the hard work of cleaning the garage, of labeling everything. You had to create right. a Dewey Decimal system that right. no one had used before, right? And yeah. unique identifiers. And so the data scientists who developed this stuff, 
I'm not sure they're getting the credit they deserve, but they solved a major issue. Yes. And it's still yeah. an issue today. This is this is still yeah. the major problem that it prevents the automation, in my opinion, of supply chain is this sheer lack of quality data around the asset. Yeah. yeah. And we and I, I still persist today. That's right. It it manifests itself as rules, right? Like that's the right. kind of the that's where these things show up. And I we have a lot, we talk a lot about shipping and kind of this concept of of like rule sets and and using rules versus kind of really trying to take in high quality data, pull in real data and turn it into an optimization. And there's yep. a there's a distinction there. There's a there's a kind of a jump that has to happen. Um, you know, well before we go onto the onto the supply chain deeper, I will take a little. I'll take a yeah. one little quick side yeah. route where I was on the team that um, launched fulfilled by Amazon 2008 oh, 2009. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And um, the funny thing is, is that we were really trying to make Amazon's marketplace competitive with eBay. Right. It's kind of funny to think back now. Right. But right, right. You know, this this it, the marketplace for Amazon was dominated by used books at that point. Um, right. And FBA, the concept was let's use the physical let's use the physical assets. God, that, that was Amazon 2008. Had. I'm sorry. Hold on before yeah. you go further, because that's a, that's that's a 10 year gap. And again, yeah. like you and I probably, you know, don't think about this, but someone listening to this because you just I mean, that, that's a big leap to go from. Yeah. You know, eBay was still, God, I didn't remember this, man. You're, you're triggering yeah. something for me here, which is in 2008, 2009, eBay was still the king of the e-commerce, you know, the king platforms. of the marketplace. Yes, at exactly. That, at that time, right? Yeah. And, and, and yeah. Amazon was still selling books, for God's sakes. That was 2007, 2008. Yeah, right? exactly. Yeah. So, so now you're kind of in this, like, you were right at the beginning of that flip to where Amazon in the 2010s and forward began and just dominated e-commerce. Right. And relegated exactly. eBay to what it is now, which is just the world's largest used market, which is fine. Right. But, you know, right. it's not yeah. the e-commerce giant it once was. So that's yeah. that's actually an amazing period to go through. So sorry, because that's like I didn't I wasn't yeah, thinking yeah, that. Kind of weird, yeah. weird to think that it wasn't that long. Yeah, we didn't have right. uh, we you know, the iPhone was just launching and and uh, oh my God. You know, eBay was eBay was still kind of this dominant force. And um, that's an example of of you kind of put this this tool in place that what eventually happened is it, it shifted from resellers to obviously manufacturers selling through FBA. And that's been a huge mm -hmm. thing for Amazon prime, obviously, again, the customer experience is what pulled that forward, but pretty mm -hmm. amazing from the standpoint of just the, um, the, the kind of getting rid of the middleman, right? Like mm -hmm. the, right. the disintermediation of all this, all this stuff that happened um, as, as FBA kind of started to grow over those years. But um, I, you know, I would say my biggest accomplishment at Amazon was 2010 to 2016. And this was really the, the kind of the, the, the thinking or the mindset that ultimately um, led to Shipium, Right. And, mm -hmm. and what we were doing in though, in around 2008, we launched this prime program and I think it was kind mm -hmm. of a, it was kind of an internal, it, it had, I think people were lukewarm on it. Right. When it first right. came out, it was just, the thought was who is going to buy a subscription thing for faster shipping. Right. It seemed very right. weird. Right. Right. And right. At the time. So at the time, but you know, this is an example though of good data, right. And, and right. not totally right in the supply chain space, but we look. We started looking at this data, and it it was it was just unbelievable how once a person had this trigger event where they bought Prime, right? Mm -hmm. 
they bought a ton more, right? And I think the, mm. the public quote these days is prime members buy four times more than non-prime members. So that's, you know, you can, you can read that on a, a right. Google for it and that's what you'll get. Sure. Um, yeah. I remember it almost being higher than that, but, but even four times amount, like if, if you're Amazon, the obvious move at that point is if I can get a customer to buy four times as much more, what are you going to do? Well, right. get them to sign up for Prime, right? So, right. so Prime became this. Prime became effectively the growth lever for Amazon in those, you know, around 2009 or 2010. And I think the the my kind of where I fit into this journey was. Um, I see you're looking around. You're you're no, no, because you got me thinking I, about that. You got me thinking about yeah. the psychology of Prime, right? Which yeah. is again a nugget that I think you're kind of going over. Yeah. And inside of there is like a business case study here for MBAs of you know the latter part of the decade, which is you you removed a barrier around shipping costs psychologically, so that the prime yeah. and this is my own words here, the prime members didn't think about shipping costs. So unconsciously, purchasers were used to kind of the um, you know the current airplane model, right? Which is I buy yeah. my ticket, then I buy an extra seat, then I buy my extra bag, yeah. and people freaking hate that. Yeah. And we can see that playing out because now what's happening is in a pricing model kind of debate, you're going to see the flip back around to fixed prices for all inclusive because people don't like that piecemeal. I mean, at the end of the day, right. some do, some don't, but the vast majority, I want to pay one thing, not think about it, get it yeah. done on top of what you made it efficient. So my question here is, and, and maybe you haven't thought about it, is psychologically, I think you also touched on something that's super important, which is you kind of just remove the whole concept of shipping fees, right? And that that just changed the buying behavior. Like, like I, I'm not even sure we even know why that is still. Like, I mean, that's the kind of psychologist in me wanting to kind of dig in and go like, geez, why yeah, do people, yeah. what, what made that happen? Well, yeah, I mean, there's, there's definitely this factor of like, I've already paid for something, so I want to use it. Um, yeah. I, so there, there's there's certainly that. I I think the thing was, is I you know, I'm I really think retail is very, very much a, there's kind of three things, right? And this is not, I'm, I'm about to just share something that's, I'm Captain Obvious right now, but it's <laughs> pricing, pricing, selection, and convenience. And this is, this okay. is all like back to kind of Sam Walton type stuff. And, you yeah. know, it's discussed for a while and, and probably even way before that. I, I don't even, you know, I, I'm not even entirely sure where this came from, but, but pricing, selection, and convenience. And clearly, like the internet had kind of changed the way we think about selection. So, I mean, right. the e-commerce e had, and that's, that's cool. Um, and pricing, you know, the other kind of interesting thing that I wasn't so involved in, but having, having this, essentially everyone showing their prices online, you kind of ended up in the spot where everyone entered into this cold war where you're just kind of matching prices with everyone else. Right. And that's, right. that's, it's, that's interesting, but, but what it did is it kind of, it kind of like, canceled out the pricing component. It kind of just said mm -hmm. like, wherever I buy this, I'm going to, it's going to be the same price. So in my internal calculation, I'm not, I'm not really needing to even think about that. Cause I know it's, yeah. and that was Amazon's goal in doing this, right? It was, it was yeah. all about like, I don't want you to even have to think about this. I want you to just be able to get on there. But the convenience thing, you know, once you kind of go from that three to five days and you take it down to two days, right? Well, right. I, it, and if you're now, the internal calculus in someone's head is just like, I can go to the mall and 
and dick around with this all day, or I can just like right. push a button and I'll just get it in two days. Well, right. you know, people, the way people think about this stuff is it's not, it's not a, um, you know, it's not like a, a black and white thing. There's not single things that matter. It's, you know, it really is like, is this what I want? And then I'm, I'm trying to figure out, like, I have to drive to the store, but now I can just get it in two days anyway. So I have to drive to the store, even though I might not get it for a little while longer. And so you kind of put all that together and you end up with this really potent formula for a customer experience that, that is just starts triggering this increased usage. Right. And, and I think what it ultimately did a good, another good framing is just, it kind of brought, um, there was this level of, you know, if you think about the world as kind of hierarchy of needs there's like the obscure mm-hmm. part when your your ac unit breaks that you need once every three years and you're fine if that takes a little while to get here uh, you know and then there's on the other end there's like you know food and food and grocery that you obviously mm-hmm. need now and you need to eat you know because you need everyone needs to eat um but these you know all of these like it brought like the toothpaste and the shampoo and all these, mm-hmm. all these kind of things into light that people started feeling comfortable buying online and prime was kind mm-hmm. of this trigger for it. And that's a huge, that was a huge um, thing for Amazon as that all started to pick up. Right. Right. Um, but my kind of role in this, just t- trying to tie it back a little bit to the other stuff was I, as we launched prime, you know, it was very clear that, um, this was an expensive proposition to get people stuff in yeah. two days and you, you have yeah. the subscription cost, but it, but it was mm-hmm. not going to be enough to offset it. And so um, when I took over the supply chain in 2010, you know, we kind of saw it as our mission to how do you actually bring this cost down to the point that this is a sustainable business? Cause you, you know, you ultimately in kind of Amazon style, you want the thing to be sustainable, even if you, without the, the, um, subscription fee, right? I mean, and, and ultimately, and the way Bezos saw the world is I'm going to take that and eventually le- leverage it to make Prime Video and bring more people on the platform and all that other stuff. But, but um, you know, from my, and what it ended up being is it really was this, let's measure where we are with all these different pieces. And that's, that mm-hmm. includes like positioning of inventory, what you're telling customers, how you're routing mm-hmm. orders and managing kind of inventory flow through the network and drain of inventory in the fulfillment centers and which carrier we're using and how they're performing. And we're going to measure all of that. And then we're going to start building opt- automation. So we're going to mm-hmm. use the, build a forecast and, and take the forecast and then apply that to the buying process. And then we're going to, you know, kind of going through these different stages and, that and then the automation, once that's in place, now you're in a position to start optimizing this stuff. And then you right. start pulling billions of dollars out of this out of this machine because right. you've got a great customer experience to anchor on, and you've got all of the tools in place now to take this data and apply it in such a way that that you're gonna get this as close to optimal as possible and the cost structure just starts plummeting. Right. I mean, it, right. it goes right. down and down and down because you're doing this correctly. Right. right. And that, um, you know, I think one of the things that is tricky in e-commerce that people don't realize is that two thirds of the cost of fulfilling an item is really the transportation cost. Right. So at, if you're a if you're a you know, there's the, the kind of like the picking, sorting it through the building putting it in a box, closing the box, putting a label on it, getting it ready to go, putting it in the truck. That stuff's like about a third of the cost or a fourth of mm-hmm. the cost, depending on the dynamics of the item. And then the, the rest of it is this transportation cost. So if you're going to really mm-hmm. optimize how you run your e-commerce business, it's all about 
getting those decision points right to that supply chain. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. then you end up, and then both things come faster, cheaper, all the, all the goodness starts happening and, and people buy more and then everyone's happy. Right. So that's kind right. of, the, that's kind of the cycle. Well, and, and, and again, I kind of go back to what we've touched on a little bit. If I break down very simply kind of the three steps of this whole kind of manufacturing sales process on the, on, and, and, and really at the end of the day, and you kind of went over it is, you know, there's price point, which is what the consumer sees and what they buy. Well, the e-commerce platforms have kind of level set that, right? Mm-hmm. So that yeah. price is no longer really a discussion. You've actually created a true global marketplace and prices yeah. are going to normalize just like, you know, Keynes and all the economists envisioned hundreds of years ago, but it's actually happening yeah. now, right? A true right, fluid, right. true yeah. macro, you know, economic exactly. environment where you can see these things kind of begin to normalize, right? So you've removed that equation. And then secondarily, you come in and say, okay, because where I'm headed with this is, it's not about price. What, what, what we're really competing on is margin. That's always what I like to kind of point out to people, right? Like if you're going to get into this game, what you're really competing on is margin, right? Because your, your yeah. price is kind of going to be fixed by the, the market, right? And right. That kind right. of game's done. So you're really going to optimize your margin dollars. And one of the biggest margin uh, or non-accretive margin or whatever, or negative margin is in the logistics side because, you know, manufacturing, you're not there yet. Right, we don't have global mm-hmm. manufacturing. We don't have three D manufacturing. We don't have manufacturing. It's kind of what, like you know, uh, flex, uh, uh, you know, your 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 unit contract manufacturers try to do is kind of bring that kind of platform yeah. perspective. But I'm going to leave that aside for a second because that's yeah. that's its own animal. But in the middle here, you're basically creating a universal kind of hey, everybody, e-commerce has been solved by this front end, and by the way, we have a logistics platform that now allows you to compete at the lowest you know, our biggest margin opportunity because you're not yes. going to be able to repeat this yeah. on yourself and you're constantly optimizing that. And by, by having that first mover yeah. advantage and all that data, it's like a self-fulfilling prophecy. Exactly. Right? You get it's smarter, totally better, a, faster, right? Right. It totally, it, it totally, um, you know, is one of those things that it just, the more kind of things go through it, the more scale is by the way that you put it if you're an investor. Um, right. You get scale into that system and, the only way to take on that scale efficiently though is with the with the technology right like you right. That, that's that's the amazing thing about about data science and the use of it is it really it's not that any one of those individual decisions someone could figure them out but it's it's sure. just that being able to do it at that scale you need the computers constantly processing and updating this stuff and right. and so that's really what you're setting up you're set, you know you're yep. you're getting your data model right um, you automate these processes so that they can be done entirely by a computer, and then you start optimizing the hell out of it. And and sure. that that kind of cycle is just amazing, right? Right, right. And so that leads right into, I guess, you launching Shipium. You're saying, okay, you know, I've done this now. I've actually grown this. I've you know, I've tackled this problem to an extent for Amazon specifically, but everyone else should be able to compete. And not have the Faustian yeah. agreement with Bezos in signing up, you know, because it used to be the same thing at Walmart, right? I mean, yeah. you know, as, as, as I mean, I pitched once long ago uh, to Walmart down Bentonville or wherever the hell they are. And, and that was a crash course in like, okay, that was the offline version of Amazon. You go in there, you pay homage to, you know, Walmart, hoping your product and SKU gets picked up. But yeah. you, you are you are a cog in their machine. They're so right. down to sign. And by the way, they could... They could immediately go, oh, I love that product. I'm going to take it over myself. 
as we see with Amazon Basics today. So kind of my point in all this is there's an opportunity because, you know, Amazon is is actually competing. It's it's, it's cannibalizing its own manufacturers to an extent, right? And and everyone knows that. So there's a huge space to say, okay, well, I don't really want to go sign up with Amazon. How do I then compete? Well, they're shipping. So, yeah, you know, no, I, I, right? I think exactly. And I think the, the observation and what was the origin story for shipping was just, if you've done this for several years, you just know how much money structurally is in making good decisions through these different points in the supply chain and right. shipping. The concept was just really pretty simple. It was, it, I mean, there's one other aspect, which is, which is a little more nuanced, but the, the point is, is that shipping is a revenue driver for e-commerce businesses, right? And in order to do fast shipping, you need the tools to actually optimize and run this efficiently because you just, you cannot decouple speed and cost in e-commerce. It's just, they're just, they're so connected in terms of, of like, if if you don't think about both, you're kind of doing both a disservice. And and I Mm -hmm. think, you know, you're kind of fooling yourself if you're using, um, you know, these, these 10 days, slow truck delivery methods, right. To, to that, you've got an efficient cost structure. And on the flip side, if you're paying for overnight, because you've got insane margins on whatever product that you're selling, you're also fooling mm-hmm. yourself. So, so it's kind of mm-hmm. a, it's about thinking about doing that whole thing, solving that puzzle efficiently. Um, but, but shipping the concept is, you know, help people make, make these decisions in the supply chain to optimize cost and speed. And then also mm-hmm. give them the tools to tell the customers about it because right. that's the, that's what ultimately is going to translate to the revenue. So it's, it's right. to some degree, it's about um, actually optimizing these decisions and then allowing you to merchandise them because merchandising mm-hmm. is what's going to actually make the, make the, make the LTV happen and the growth yep. and the sale. And, and yep. so um, I just, you know, we started chipping because we just saw this huge opportunity to tie all this together and in a way that, that, you know, that ultimately is what these customers need. I think, I think to some degree you were touching on, on a bit, but Amazon, they own, I think I want to say like 55% of the e-commerce market at this point, something like that. And I just think it's inevitable that everyone starts as e-commerce grows as a percentage Mm -hmm. of retail, it is just a foregone conclusion that there's going to be continued pressure on breaking away at that. Um, mm-hmm. you know, there's going to be less opportunity for Amazon to subsidize it with, with other, you know, AWS or whatever aspects of their build business. And I think you've got this huge opportunity emerging where more and more players are going to enter into this and they already are obviously, but, but they're going to right. enter into it in a more direct way where they're trying to compete on shipping experience. And that's what Shipium right. is trying to solve. We are really trying right. to bring this as a tool for customers to grow their revenue, right? Is the, right. Is, I mean, companies to grow their revenue by having an awesome premium shipping experience. The name Shipium kind of yeah. came from that, premium shipping. So, yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, hey, there you go. All right, well, there's there, there's even the origin story on Shipium. Sometimes it can yeah, be a Yahoo go. or yeah, a exactly. Google, which is like nonsensical, but yours is actually like someone thought about somewhere in some, you know, you're having a whiskey somewhere like, oh my God, Shipium, like <laughs> premium shipping. But so so let me, and, and, and I also want to be conscious of time. And I, I, like I told you at the beginning, uh, you know, if you, I, I knew the two of us were going to have a hard time constraining ourselves to an hour. So, so, I, and, and, and it's fabulous. So I, I, but the one thing I want to get into is a little bit of a prognostication kind of view, which is, okay, so now you're in, you're, you know, logistics is still big. There's still a massive amount of technology 
data, data cleansing that needs to happen. There's a lot of connective tissue that needs to be developed between, you know, the freight carriers in ocean, air, land, you know, rail, trucks, and then even last mile kind of shit. I mean, there's just, mm. there's a lot of pieces that are coming together that you're still building. I get all that. I want to look forward a little bit, you know, cause you, you, you know, you've forgotten more about logistics than most people are going to learn in their lifetime. But as we look forward, I also think, and the question for you is, I think there's some disruptors on the horizon for what we consider to be traditional logistics, right? So manufacturing is going through its own kind of rethinking right now, right? We had centralized manufacturing. Now we got regional manufacturing. Uh, again, that's a whole other episode we could talk about. So let's just assume now, but products, right, and where they are, and if I can pre-position them in a way that's closer to my cohort of users, I mean, things of that nature are starting to creep in to logistics. And I, I do think there's a couple things I'm sort of trying to tease here, but I think there's a couple things in the horizon also. And I'm thinking kind of along the lines of like drones or 3D printing that are actually still very embryonic. We're still mm -hmm. probably five to seven to eight years from them becoming in and really doing the disruption. But I, if you're not paying attention to them, you're yeah. going to miss that as it comes yeah. up. So the question is like, what do you see disruptively in the next five to seven years that you've got your eye on that may or may not be a part of kind of this, you know, disruption that's yeah. going to happen? Yeah. Yeah. I think, I mean, the way I kind of tend to frame it is, is will the disruption have a, a outsized impact on customer experience in some way? Right. Right. And, and then, and then it probably secondly, um, the second checkpoint is, does it have some outsized impact on cost structure, right? Because if, if those two things happen, then, then I think you have this kind of change in the way that, that, you know, you have this, this massive shift that's going to happen, right? And mm -hmm. I think you're, you're kind of queuing up, like the interesting thing about the drone or the self-driving car or the, or the um, kind of those, those things, right? Is mm -hmm. that they potentially just, make these these processes that you know i, I think like we, we've kind of seen the the um the grocery delivery the super fast yeah. grocery delivery and people are struggling with that right now and um yep. you know you, you could you you they're interesting they kind of check the first box they're like okay yep. people like this right like they like that they can get stuff in 15 minutes but um they haven't made the cost structure work for it yet Right. right. And that's, right. that's kind of the challenge. And I, I think, you know, where there's opportunity with some of this stuff is, can you make that cost structure work if you're able to change the dynamics of, mm -hmm. of like, of the way this goes? And I, I think, you know, you, the, the drones, I think are interesting to everyone because it's, it's, it's not going to work for, you know, obviously it's not going to change like a long haul or density of route right. or anything that, right. that kind of, we use as these traditional points, but it, you know, if you, if drones get cheap enough, they've got enough delivery distance and these hyper local things are like, okay, I no longer have to kind of hire this, this Uber like driver to go deliver one item, which it's just, right. if you think about the cost of someone going to a store, going to a place, picking it up, driving it somewhere, considering oh. that you have these 15 minute time events, like right. you're not going to get, you're not going to get more than two items, you know, two totally. items is going to be a stretch. And so right. you just, I can't in my head make that math work. Right. But if you, right. if you did have something where the, the capitalization on a drone was cheap enough and, yeah. um, and I, I think that's why it's interesting and you kind of keep playing with it is, is that's an opportunity for doing like these hour deliveries or these, these mm -hmm. kind of changing that dynamic. Um, 
and and so I think that's interesting. I think the uh, I I think um, I do think there's probably quite a bit of I think you can if you follow this pattern of of kind of continued disintermediation and and mm-hmm. this notion of of kind of disintermediation slash globalization and obviously we kind of we go back and forth around. you know the the obviously like supply chain there's a huge win by shifting all of the manufacturing to china and now there's kind of we now we're 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 over invested in that and there's but but i think i think in general um you know this notion of of trying to find efficient ways to balance if you you know if you think of the world as what does it cost to make it versus what does it cost to to kind of move it move it near a person where they're going to purchase it in the Mm e-commerce world. I think there's Mm -hmm. a lot of interesting things in forms of this 3d printing or, or automation or something else such that if I'm able to bring, you know, like it's inherently much, much cheaper to make a couch in China, right. Right. But it costs a lot to ship the couch across the U S and so the, I mean, to the U S and so therefore the calculus is not as simple as like a thousand USB drives, right? And so right, right. I think you, you know you got. I think the reason that the three D printing stuff is interesting is just if I've got more or less automated or more cost efficient ways to make it locally, then um, and it's it's on par with with what it costs to you know maybe not even as low but close when you factor in the capitalization. Then you're in a mm-hmm. position to say like, okay, well, I, if I can make it for relatively cheap, I don't have to ship it across, right? Or I can mm-hmm. ship it on demand. And I think, I think all that stuff is 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 very interesting on in the horizon as this as as these things start to take hold. And I I think there's gonna you're you're seeing it. Um, I think you see it. You see the beginnings of it now because you've got different people playing with different models based on what's what's the customer want, and then. Mm-hmm you know, what are the realities of, of kind of the, the kind of the, the, the cost of manufacturing and supply and everything else. Right. Right. And and so I think all of that is super, you know, I I think it's, it's definitely going to go in a different direction over the next 10 years. And it's, you know, it's hard to see exactly what works. There's people that are much further out ahead looking at all this stuff, but super (laughs) interesting. For sure. For sure. All right. So I'll I'll wind up and I know we're kind of coming, coming top of the hour here. Um, and, and I, but I do want to ask, and first of all, I also want to congratulate you because it kind of flew over it. You know, you guys closed an A round, pretty good size a few months ago. You know, that's obviously, you know, a Herculean task, uh, in the midst of everything, but you're also, I think, you know, candidly in a pretty, solid space that people weren't throwing money at you, then they're missing the boat. Uh, you know what I'm saying? Like it's it's the biggest thing. I mean, I, I like to look at what's going on here. The digitization of this hundred trillion dollar economy is the biggest thing to actually emerge as an opportunity since the internet itself. It's like, uh, for me, all these 25 some odd years, 30 years have been kind of leading up to the digitization of the world supply chain in a way, right? Um, We've kind of been dancing around it. We're kind of getting back into it. So question is, got some money, super exciting, great times. What's coming up for you guys like this year and the next year? Like what are are you guys doing? What's sort of the announceable stuff that that you guys, because it's obviously a pretty fun time to be where you're at, I imagine. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think we are, um, I think, you know, you in these, we're, 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 we've kind of landed on, I think when we started Chippium, we were playing around with, should we, you know, should we get some warehouses? Should we try to do some, do operations? But I think the need has been very, very clear that, that this software model is, is a really good fit for us because it, there's just a, it it allows us to really, 
you know, the argument is just that it's going to be hard for retailers up to the size of Amazon to go build all this stuff. It's a heavy lift. And so if we can build it, then, then we should be able to provide it as a service and, and the SaaS model really fits well. But, um, I I think, you know, we're, we're basically, um, you know, we have several customers on the platform now they're, Mm -hmm. they're running the software. And I think you've got, um, you know, the, the, so if I think about like, what's the goal, I think definitely more volume to the system because it improves our data modeling, improves our ability to kind of help with decisions. And so clearly like booking new contracts, growing customers, helping with all the, all those things are, 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 are at front and center of what we're trying to do. Um, and then I think the other kind of angle of that is just, is just focusing on continuing to build out this platform. I think what mm-hmm. we found is that, um, the reason Shipium is compelling to people and the reason it's interesting is it, if you look at each individual, every individual piece that comprises the platform and what we're doing, mm-hmm. there's, there probably is something out there that is, is competitive with us. I think the mm-hmm. intriguing part when we're selling to people is just the concept of this coordination and tie together. So we're, right. what we're really trying to do is, is, is kind of anchor ourselves on this horizontal piece where all of those different factors are talking together really well. Mm-hmm. And you, you get this outsized advantage the same way we did at Amazon effectively of, of things mm-hmm. being coordinated and talking in this way, such that, such that, you know, when you're placing inventory, it knows kind of what the transportation costs is at any node. Or when I, right. if I'm going to make a decision on improving my prom, my, my kind of how fast I want to ship or my promises, I understand the shipping costs such that I can make that trade off between speed and cost very efficiently. And, and kind of, you know, essentially it's, it's equivalent to like ad spending optimization, right? Yeah. I can, I right. can dial that up in a way. And so, um, you know, the, the more features and the more kind of robust we make the platform, the more compelling it, it is to future clients as well as, well as like, you know, people using it for a, more of their stuff. Right. And so yep. we're, that's where we're, you know, that's, that's really the focus. Um, yep. it's still a very engineering heavy company, um, because it's just, it's a heavy lift, but, yeah. but that's what we're trying to do over the next, the next couple of years. So. That's awesome, man. Well, listen, I, I again, just want to thank you for spending some time here this morning. It's such a great story. Definitely going to keep an eye, you know, virtually we're, we're, we're connected. And I also want to highlight people, you know, you're open to connecting on LinkedIn. You're all over yeah, that. Absolutely. Uh, there's some great stuff, you know, for you guys, if people want to read up on it. Um, but, you know, congratulations on the success. Uh, fun to watch. Great conversation. We'd love to do it again in some other time. But it's just, you know, really thank you a lot for spending some time. Thank you so much. It was great talking to you, yeah. Richard. Have a good awesome. rest of your day. Thanks for listening. If you have any comments about this episode or topics on supply chain you'd like us to cover, you can reach us at supplychainnext at requis.com. And while you're at it, check out the Requis platform at supplychain.requis.com. Requis allows you to manage the full asset lifecycle in the cloud while collaborating with your entire value network to buy, manage, and sell your assets. Find out more at requis.com.